Um, <laughs> hey, has anyone seen the I Kill Giants movie? No. Do you no. Know? no. I uh, marked it on Netflix because I saw it's there, uh-huh. and, and I have not managed to watch it yet. Well, so no, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, as the person who was grumbling about it last episode, I feel obligated to say it was actually pretty good. Really? Oh, it was surprisingly faithful to the comic, and the writer was involved in the production. Wow. Both of them, which are things you don't normally see in comic book adaptations, and they also managed to fix a lot of the things that we pointed out as, hmm, that doesn't seem that great. Oh, okay. That's very reassuring. I now I'm gonna have to watch that when I get home. I think I was surprised. I wasn't expecting it to be good at all. Oh, there we go. That's I think that's a ringing endorsement <laughs> from me yeah. for context. of uh, comics that have been adapted faithfully by its own creator. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Today we are reading The Complete Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. And uh, this was my pick. So uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. But before we do that, we should do some character building questions. All right. So this is a bit of a different question. I don't know how this is going to go. We're going to try it, though. I want you to tell me the most ill-advised thing you've ever done as part of a move or on a trip somewhere? Because there's a few of those in this book. This is probably not the best story, but, like, my most sort of ill-advised move was when I was having to move out of one apartment at the end of the month and then go into a new apartment at the beginning of the next month, but... The changeover of the month happened during Emerald City Comic Con. So I had to figure out how I would move out of one place and keep all of my belongings in limbo for uh, three days and then deposit them at this new place. And so I discovered that U-Haul does uh, U-Haul pods where you can like book like a big orange box that they drop off in front of your apartment and you load it up with your stuff. And normally what they do is they take those pods, they move them across the country, or they store them for several months. And I was on the phone saying, yeah, no, like three days, it's all I need, three days, and like drop it off at this other address. And they did it, it worked out great, but it was a lot of money uh, and a lot of um, a lot of effort for just like going to Emerald City Comic Con and then moving into a new apartment uh, at the end of it. So at Emerald City, my joke was, I'm homeless, this convention. <laughs> and who are you? Oh, and I am Jeff Ellis. Currently not homeless. We'll <laughs> okay. see for how long. Okay. Actually, I have something that slightly ties to that, um, to possibly being homeless. I love the place I live in right now, and it's working out really well, but a problem is that it floods a lot. So I've been living there for about a year, and after a few months, it flooded, right? Um, And I got this email while I was at work, and it was basically like, the toilet overflowed, and your place is flooded with poo. Um, So, like, luckily it wasn't. Um, It was sort of like a panicked first email when we didn't know a lot about what had happened. So because it was a possible 
biohazard. We couldn't stay there. So I was like, am I, I don't have a place to live for now. Like, I don't know what'll happen. So what ended up happening is that um, they had to do these huge renovations and we got put in this very surreal insurance condo and in international village. <laughs> and that's a whole other thing, but <laughs> it ended up working out. But yeah, there was definitely that scare for a little, little bit. Yeah, that does not sound fun. And who are you? Oh my gosh, I'm I'm Jess. I guess I'll go next. Is everyone sorry? My uh, and who are you? <laughs> I'm Jam. My tale is not about moving, but it is about traveling. And so when I was young and broke and traveling in Italy with my husband Trevor, not my husband at the time, we arrived in I believe it was Naples. We arrived in Naples a bit too late. We were there probably 11 p.m. And the tourist information center had closed. There wasn't internet at that time because it was the past and I'm very old. And uh, so for one reason or another, the conclusion that we came to is we can't get in a hotel tonight. We're leaving in the morning and it was very post-apocalyptic because there was a garbage strike in Naples at the time. So we had pulled up to the city middle of the night. No one can talk to us. We don't speak Italian. Garbage everywhere. This is starting to sound a little bit more like this is the last day of your rest of your life, which we were discussing earlier. <laughs> and Trevor and I decided, well, I guess this is the situation we're in. We're just going to sleep in the train station tonight. And then as we were trying to get settled and comfortable of like, oh, this is, this is what we're doing, I guess, uh, we started getting shuffled out the door because the train station was closing. So we were very soon to be sleeping on the street. Uh, and then the uh, custodian who was you know, ejecting everyone from the from the train station, recognized that these two, you know, I think I was 19. <laughs> these two young Canadians, one of these things does not look like the other of the people that were being ushered out of the station, uh, took pity on us and through just pantomime communicated that we ought to follow him. And we got ushered to what I, upon reflection, believe is probably a one-star hotel. You probably <laughs> compare it to an SRO. Uh, what I remember is that every channel on the TV was porn, but, uh, I was very grateful that, you know, it was not the first time or the last time that someone had just completely taken pity on us and not the first or last time that we ended up in dire straits on that trip. But yeah, I didn't have to sleep on the train station or the street that night. Let's count that as a win. Thank you for very kind strangers. Thank you, kind stranger in Italy. I'm Kay and I have never done anything ill-advised. <laughs> <laughs> while moving or traveling or in my life in general <laughs> okay you're just perfect um yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay well i'm gonna tell two stories then <laughs> <laughs> yeah you get one of my stories <laughs> that's right uh okay so i'm jonathan uh i'll tell them the short version of both of them uh and then leave the rest up to the audience's imagination so one time i have a travel story and i have a moving story so my travel story is i was in greece I was trying to get to Santorini, uh, and you have to take a ferry. It's a long ferry trip. And I just assumed that ferries in Greece would be similar to ferries in BC, where like they're organized and systematic, and there's a schedule, and if you don't show up on time, then you don't go, and like huh. all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's not like that in Greece. Uh, so I got on the ferry, and there was a storm, I guess, and the ferry was late, and we were like stopping off island to island like moving very slowly and it was like really really late and I had it was already clear that I wasn't going to get the connecting ferry to Santorini so I got off the ferry on one island 
I went looking. I went to the first hotel I saw. Uh, I said, do you have space? And they said, no. Uh, and so I got back on the ferry before they left. Uh, I went to the next island. And this, this island I had booked a hotel on because I was supposed to connect to the next ferry from there. But uh, the hotel that I had booked was long since closed because it was the middle of the night. So I just stayed up all night and walked around this cool little town on a little island in Greece. And it was pretty cool, but I don't want to do that ever again. <laughs> how old were you on this happened? Oh, how old was I? Um, probably late 20s. All right. So not super young, not super old. Um, and my other story is uh, when I moved to London, I found a place to live on the internet and phoned up the, the landlord to arrange that I could live there um, and then had no way to get myself from the underground to the house so I begged the landlord for a ride from there from the train station to the house and uh, basically just stumbled off a train and then stumbled into a car and then to this house uh, without seeing the house or the person ahead of time don't do that it's a bad idea (laughs) so today we are doing uh, Persepolis And just for the audience's benefit, there are different versions of this book. This is the version that is the whole story collected together. There's another version that's two volumes um, in English. And then there's another version in French that is four separate volumes. But this contains everything. Oh, good. I'm glad I got the right one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I guess I should tell you a little bit about um, the author... Uh, although I don't have a lot to say because her life story is this book, so that's also the plot. But uh, a couple of additional pieces of information. Uh, she was born in Iran, obviously, as we know from the story. She now lives in France. Uh, she is a cartoonist, a director, an illustrator, a children's book illustrator. She has written, uh, like, Persepolis has only ever won two awards, wow. which is, like, that seems like a severe oversight on the part of the comics establishment like this should have won more than two awards i'm sorry it's won more awards for the movie version than the book version um i know that's bizarre it is that's so fascinating considering like how like visible this book is i guess within comics where Uh it's like even people who don't read comics it's kind of like mouse in that way where like they know about persepolis Uh and to Mm -hmm. compare mouse won the pulitzer (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) This won a couple of awards at Angoulême, but that's it. Do you think it might be, I don't think this is an excuse, but perhaps because it was originally released in French, it didn't get the attention of the English award audience until it was some more mature work and translated? That's probably a pretty good theory. I don't think there, like, there are a few books that have made that path from a French publication to English. Uh, so, because it's not a well-traveled path, it's probable that it's just not getting the attention it deserves from certain circles. Yeah. Because yeah. I know that there is a, a timing issue, so to speak. Like, a, a work can only get nominated for an Eisner being the most prestigious book. Uh, you have to get nominated within your publication year, right? Mm-hmm. And so, okay. if your uh, publisher is not larger willing to do that because this is a reprint right the second volume the, the two volume yeah. set 
I have the second volume of the first or the older edition, mm-hmm. so I don't actually recall the original publisher of that. So it could be that it just fell through the cracks. How sad. Hmm. But not that awards are the be all and end all. No, but <laughs> I mean, if it, I was just surprised when I saw that, yeah, I would have expected different. Um, it was adapted into a film in two thousand seven, which uh, Marjani was involved in. I think she was the director for that. Yes, and she's done some other books, which uh, I'll give you the list of books of hers that are available in English. There's Embroideries, Chicken with Plums, Monsters Are Afraid of the Moon, The Sigh, uh, and then she's directed a bunch of other movies as well. But I didn't write that down because we're talking about comics. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess, what did you guys think of this book? I liked it. Actually, I had bought Persepolis when it first got translated and was released uh, kind of to English readers. And I think the for me, like the movie and the comic kind of all seem to come out around the same time in my mind. I don't know if that's correct, but everyone was talking about this comic and this movie was in theaters kind of at the same time in my memory. And I never actually got to see the movie until preparing for this episode. Um, but I did, uh, this was my second time reading it, and uh, I remember enjoying it a lot the first time, and I actually found, I think I have a greater appreciation for it the second time. I think there was, I'd forgotten how personal the work was. There was so much stuff that really wasn't about the Iranian Revolution, it was more just about growing up, really. Um, and that's some stuff I'd forgotten about and, and was nice to remind myself of. Uh, I will echo your sentiment because I feel like it mirrors my experience as well. Uh, Similarly, this is my second time reading the book. Read it a couple of years ago. Remember it very fondly. But similarly to Jeff, like, I think I got a greater appreciation. I was able to appreciate it on another level or just kind of peel through the layers a little bit more uh, reading it this time. So uh, I think a work that is standing up really, really well to time Mm -hmm. (laughs) so far. So uh, I was delighted to read it again. Yeah, me too. Um, it's funny, I had the exact same experience as well. I read it a couple years ago, and for me, um, I was a lot younger when I first read it, and I think that I didn't have the ability to appreciate it as much, because this time, reading it, like, I was sobbing. Like, I, this is one of my favorite comics. I'm so glad we're doing this review, and I'm so glad I read it again, because this is just, it's just st- stunning, and so personal, and kind of shocking at, at times. It's, it's just great, yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually hadn't read it before. Um, I have read Chicken with Plums mm-hmm. um, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, I don't really know why I hadn't read it before, because it was always there. And I used to get, com- people would be like, oh, your artwork looks like her artwork, um, which I think is not an accurate comparison, but it was like, oh, maybe I should read that, and then I never did. So I was happy to get the chance to. And I think it's definitely, like, one of the best put together like memoir works that I've read in comics yeah I I don't know it was very very engaging well obviously I like this book because I picked it but uh, (laughs) it's interesting that my experience mirrors many of you as well that uh, this is my second time reading it uh, and yeah again I'd forgotten all the personal elements but I feel like those the kind of the heart of the story like Mm. I might be convinced to read a story that was just like a straight retelling of the Iranian Revolution, but I'm not sure very many people would. Like the the personal aspects of this are what make it such an engaging story and make you feel so much for uh, the author and 
the stuff that she's been through that's not as easy for those of us who have not been through a revolution to relate to. Um, but those, those sort of relatable parts of her life, I think, just like shine a highlight on everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I will second that. I think the fact, I felt this work to be so deeply relatable and uh, really easy to connect to and empathize with. And that is, I, I agree, an, an element that makes it feel so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I sort of think that um, I actually was feeling rereading this. It sort of felt like this is even a more important work now because, like, currently we're living in times where uh, tensions between the United States and Iran are a little higher. Uh, there's sort of tensions between, you know, uh, Muslim and non-Muslim people sometimes are higher depending on where you are in the world. And uh, you know, I, I think this was really important in that it it was just like. Um, showing you that it really doesn't matter like what country you're from or what religion you your country is practicing uh or what the culture cultural differences are like there's a really there's some core human experiences that you can read this woman's account of you know growing up in iran and so much of the things she sort of is going through emotionally as far as like figuring out herself in her 20s and just trying to kind of like navigate the systems around her that like it's still very relatable right even though like i'm coming at the world from a completely different direction a completely different space she's in uh there's still like a lot of uh emotional core that is very relatable and i think it's like a really good work for just sort of you know sort of showing that like we all have these sort of similar human experiences deep down and you know like the nation and religion and all that stuff that's that's secondary like we have these core core emotional experiences that's interesting you had a very different reaction uh, i also think it's an important book to re-read right now but the reason i thought it was important was because of the political climate in the west right now and mm-hmm. the rising nationalism that we're seeing so what i i saw in this work is through the eyes of marjane's parents the slow erosion of freedoms and, you know, well, I guess we're going to go out and protest. This is what we got to do. And we're going to, you know, resist in counterculture because this is what we believe in and we're not going to sacrifice our beliefs, but we still have to go to work. We still have to get things done. We still have to live our lives. We're still parents. We're still Mm -hmm. someone trying to grow up. So this whole, this, this striking dichotomy of like our freedoms are eroding and we have to resist and adapt to a, really oppressive regime but life goes on in a way like there Mm -hmm. are still you don't get to drop your Mm -hmm. personal struggles and your personal things that you're trying to navigate as an individual in the world uh you kind of have to hold both and that makes it even more Mm -hmm. oppressive when you think about it that it's not just something that you you think of on an intellectual layer yeah that's a great that's a great observation yeah i totally uh yeah i see that too absolutely yeah yeah I do feel like uh, rereading it now as opposed to, I don't remember what year it was that I read this the first time, but there were definitely things that felt more relatable now than they did the last time I read this. Like I'm looking not just for someone's life experience, but also like advice. Like what should I do if it gets as bad as this? (laughs) (laughs) Things to watch out for. Yeah. Should I talk a little bit about the plot? 
Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I want to be brief because there's so much that happens in this story. Uh, like basically, if I were to go point by point, I'd have to like read it to you, and I don't can do that. So, spoiler alert: there was a revolution in Iran. Uh, <laughs> is it is it worth discussing <laughs> how it started? The history of that, or, or a little bit? Sure. So, um, let's see if I can do that. Persia was a monarchy. I think it was a constitutional monarchy. If I I might have that wrong. I'm sorry if I do. Um, and, but it, uh, and it was, um, it had a lot of oil. And so, uh, Britain and the U S wanted access to that oil. Uh, and so they picked a side in the, uh, conflict. Uh, so the Islamic revolution happened in 1979 and it was the overthrow of 2,500 years of continuous Persian monarchy under Muhammad Reza Shah. Yeah, the Shah. Uh, so the Shah was overthrown, and then eventually, out of that chaos, um, an Islamic Republic was established, and the Grand Ayatollah uh, became the leader, and this is where they shifted into becoming uh, a very oppressive Islamic uh, Republic. Yeah, so that was that was a very interesting... So basically, there was this sort of like transition without an actual revolution. Like there was the revolution itself, where this coalition of parties overthrew the monarchy, uh, and then somehow this broad collective of revolutionaries transitioned into being a single political force being in charge, which was the um, the fundamentalist uh, religious group. And then this had consequences for uh, Iran's position with its neighbors. And Iraq under Saddam Hussein decided to invade. And there was a war between Iran and Iraq. And so the author lived through that as well, which lasted quite a bit longer and was like arguably quite a lot more destructive than the revolution had been. And so uh, Marjane moved to Austria when she was, uh, how old was she at that point? 14, I believe. 14, yeah. Uh, her parents basically uh, found a place for her to be that was outside Iran for her safety. And she already spoke French, so this was an advantage. And then her parents came from a pretty well-off background, so they were able to make this happen. And they put her in a French boarding school in Austria. And But then she has to live in a country where she doesn't know anybody, she doesn't have any relatives, uh, she doesn't speak the dominant language. Yeah. Uh, doesn't fit in with the culture very well. And she's 14 and all on her own. Uh, so that doesn't work out that great. She ends up homeless for a while. Uh, she has a rotating cast of dubious friends <laughs> of varying merit. And uh, eventually uh, she moves back to Iran once the war with Iraq is over. And gets married. But then... That marriage isn't going very well either, so she gets divorced, and that's, I think, pretty much the whole story. What am I forgetting? It it ends with her moving to France. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. um, Spoiler. She moves to France. (laughs) (laughs) And then we get a French book out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just looking at some of the revolution stuff, I mean, I think now that it's, you guys brought it up, like, I I definitely uh, see some of the parallels. Um, I think that. In the early chapters, when she's still quite young, and she her, there's her uncle, who is the communist, 
Uh, I thought that was really interesting how, you know, they've overthrown the Shah and he's convinced, like, the proletariat will do the right thing. They will, like, establish a communist government and, and Lenin's revolution will come to fruition. And then he's watching as, like, things are not going the way he thinks they're going to go. And he's like, oh, you know, like, sure, the farmers will, like, get behind religion now, but, like, you know, don't worry, the intellectuals will start to change things soon. And, and it's, like, continuing to get worse and worse. And, and then he ends up imprisoned and killed for being a communist. Um, but I, you know, I thought that was, like, um, like it was really interesting just looking at sort of that, that chaotic period where, you know, there's a few different people that see Iran. Obviously, Iran's going to go this direction, or obviously, Iran's going to go that direction, and it doesn't doesn't go the way a lot of people are expecting it to. And uh, it was just sort of interesting to watch, like, a country sort of reshape itself, and then from that little girl's perspective. And then I also just, yeah, I just, I was really just taken with, um, like, I think something you were talking about earlier, like, the sort of it's like they're talking about war and atrocities and yet there's also still like this sort of mundane like like yeah the government's arresting people but we still got to go to the grocery store like <laughs> it's it, it, it was sort of interesting like the way that you saw how you know people sort of had to sort of go about their day while also real recognizing that they were in this situation and that was like uh, sort of very tragic and um, in some ways kind of tragic and bleak, but then in another way it sort of like shows you that like, you know, no matter what is happening in the world, like people still have to go, like there's still like, there's going to be those, those moments where people are going about their day in all situations, you know, I was, it was really interesting just the layers in this work. Yeah. I also thought it was really interesting to, I think Marjani's family provided a really interesting perspective on the uh, the overall situation because they were quite secular, they were quite wealthy. There was uh, I was always struck by how much political conversation was happening around Marjani when she was young and growing up, and the opinions of her parents and how those opinions shaped her ideals and her rebelliousness mm -hmm. perhaps and I really enjoyed the part that explained how Iranian society started to split among those who were buying into the or, or deciding to align themselves with the more religious uh, groups and how they always wore beards and wore like longer veils and how you could see these subtle acts of rebellion in the more secular people because they wore mustaches or like headscarves and uh, the constant conflict at all levels in their lives, like conflict with authority people in the streets and in the schools and in the hospitals, like all of these different elements that this uh, this regime started coming into their lives was a really interesting window for me. Yeah, and it almost it feels like it sort of uh, almost requires dissent where... There are so many people telling you what to do at all times that instead of deciding whether or not to do what you're told, you're basically deciding when to do what you're told and when not to and how, what you can get away with. Like, can we all go to a person's house and have like a party with alcohol? How much trouble will, be in, will we be in? What are we willing to risk? Because um, it almost becomes impossible to not risk anything. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. There didn't seem to be a survivable path of total compliance. Yeah. Like, I, I, I know that this was brought up many times of, like, compliance meant sending your sons to be martyred, right? And when Marjani was being sent away to France, she remarked that a lot of the people also boarding the plane were very young men hmm. just under the age of conscription because, yeah, defiance was survival for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think she said that um, men over 13 couldn't leave the country. Right. I think that was the situation, so... Yeah, because I yeah. guess the government knew that this was happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's really interesting because I agree with what other people have said about how it's so relatable with, you know, buying tapes and wanting to wear makeup and the the human moments. Um, but I also got this glimpse into a life that I couldn't imagine. Um, like the idea of, like, showing two inches of hair and having um, armed men uh, attack you, basically, like... There were so many things that I just didn't, haven't even thought of. Like I've, you know, you know a little bit about this situation in the news and reading and things like that, but I felt like this was such um, an amazing comic for lots of different reasons, but just um, the glimpse into life. Like, like you were saying, there's so many layers to it um, with the personal and the political and the cultural. It was really interesting. Yeah. And I think this is why it's so important to get a story written by someone from Iran, because Especially with Iran, there's so much, like, um, I'm going to just call it propaganda about, like, made by people from the West about what they think Iran is like. Uh, And, like, as someone who has never been there, like, I don't know, like, I know that I'm not being told the whole truth if I see, if I watch a movie that's, like, made in Hollywood and set in Iran or whatever. Um, But I don't know enough to know what's true and what's not. So you have to have someone who's actually from there and has lived through it be able to say no no it's like this this is what happened to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and there is a lot of um, orientalism in the reflections from the west i feel mm-hmm. and uh, yeah i feel like that culture was so baked into this narrative right like the the truly iranian elements of marjane's culture and her experience uh, she speaks later on in the book about how when her mother comes to visit her in austria She felt so relieved because she could just have a conversation without explaining her culture (laughs) and the relief that she felt just being able to smoothly communicate, right, with someone who doesn't need to know the backstory and why you're feeling the way you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just to attach to something you said earlier about her parents, I think her parents are great. (laughs) They're, like, really such good people with, like, good ideas and, like... um, I don't know. I love Marjani's parents. They oh, yeah. seem so strong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so brave. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it's really hard to imagine being as brave as they are. Yeah. In in the context that they have had to endure. Uh-huh. And, like, even up till the very end where, well, I, I think the two moments that really struck me were when they decided to send Marjani away to Vienna. And they were saying what we have faith in is your French education. And it's like, we know we have invested a lot in you and we believe in your ability to, to do this. And then like at the very end where they were like, it is clear to us now that you, the person that we have invested everything in can no longer exist in Iran. And I forbid you to return (laughs) and how like poignant that was at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, like that Mm -hmm. took so much strength from them, I believe. And Mm -hmm. to come from two people who so clearly love their culture and love their daughter to say 
the only way this can work is you need to not be here. Yeah. Like they're they're not. Um, I think if a if a Westerner were to write this story, it would not be as kind to Iranian culture as this book is just by her lived experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even if he were trying to do that, I don't think you get that deep sense of like this is something that's really really valuable that someone from here is coming and like just stomping all over. Like they're not just hurting the people, they're hurting the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's why memoir is just such like a valuable um, tool and a valuable genre to work within. And I feel like comics especially is such like a powerful medium to do it in. I don't know if it's just because like comics is more accessible where like I don't read that many novels anymore and I probably wouldn't necessarily like like I don't gravitate toward memoir in novels or like in fully prose form but I will absolutely go for it in a comic and it's really appealing to me in a comic um and I don't know why that is yeah that's interesting Hmm. I feel the same way and I also don't know why um it's interesting I don't know like there's also you know just the interesting aspect of like how is this person choosing to depict themselves and like I feel like it's almost a more specific personal lens than just prose because it's like the way that this person has like codified their entire experience in the world around them um, and trying to like, I don't know, it's just like almost if you believe in like quote unquote truth, like a truer expression Hmm. maybe than just words. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. That's something that I've dedicated a lot of thought to about the role of autobio in comics, right? And it was something that I was reflecting a lot on because, um, well, to add context for anyone who doesn't know, I wrote autobio for 11 years. And what drove me at the time was this like pressure to share what I was experiencing because I thought it was unusual and I thought no one else would tell a story like mine. Yeah, I, I, I'd been really interested in the type of art that you would see from like Dutch painters where they were painting like a kitchen. And it just seemed like really mundane and random. And that was always my really favorite type of art Hmm. from people who were not rich, not doing anything important, but just depicting mundane everyday life. Uh, And I also think that the cartooning nature, because it is so much of a higher... Okay, it's challenging to write prose, but... (laughs) Because comics take more energy to execute, I believe it forces you to be a lot more conscientious about the moments that you're depicting. Mm, you have to you have mm. to have a kind of a, a brevity in order to get done, right? Just like physically. And my take on that is that that helps it feel less like navel gazing. <laughs> okay, okay. But I'm not sure. Like, I, I must confess that I haven't actually read that many prose memoirs. But I always feel a bit turned off because I feel like they're a bit navel-gazy, so maybe that's why. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of navel-gazy oh. comments. Oh, agreed. <laughs> agreed. And of course, like, uh, the pot calling the kettle black, of course. Like, yes, wrote, yes, like, five yeah, books like... of autobio. I can't say that that's not navel-gazy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like, I mean, this doesn't um, exclude prose, but I do feel like both prose and comics have the advantage of being like a direct line from the author to the audience. You, it's made by one person. You don't have other people mediating that person's life story. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. But again, that doesn't exclude prose. I mean, I, I, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, to maybe further that, I just, I think that, um, you know, we've talked, or I've heard people talk about how comics have the ability to sort of reach you emotionally and intellectually, like you can read the words and like absorb like the story intellectually, but then the pictures themselves also create like an emotional response. And so I think that when you have the author handcrafting their experiences in comic form, they're shaping uh, the narrative in the words, but they're also creating like emotional moments in the art. And I think that that maybe enhances the expression of like what's going on in the author's head that you really get to sort of see this is exactly how they felt emotionally when this thing was happening. So they're kind of depicting the the facts of what happened, but you're also kind of getting their, their impressions of how they felt about everything that was happening as well. Hmm. That could be, because, I mean, in prose, you can just tell a story straight without writing emotion onto the page. But comics, that's impossible, because the way that you draw things, there's always emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, like to jump off that a bit, I I feel like comics are the closest thing to the experience of remembering something. Mm. Uh, I think in Ice Haven, the comic, it said that it has the uh, externality of images and the internality of words. It's, you get both, like mm-hmm. you were saying. So I I kind of my own memories feel a bit like a comic mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I, I mean, I've recently been starting to do some short, like, travel comics about my experiences going, like, bike camping and stuff, which I, not nearly the emotional punch of, like, Persepolis, but uh, I definitely have found that, like, it's been interesting, yeah, like, sort of selectively deciding what are the key moments worth recording, and then how do you depict those things, and, like, recognizing, you know, that when I draw an image, like I'm putting a certain emotional spin on that memory and I'm drawing it obviously to how I remember it, but like other people might remember it differently. It's just, it's my expression of it. And, and so I think that you're sort of really getting a very pure perspective of one person's point of view. Um, whether that's a, like, I don't know, it'd be interesting if like if multiple people made their own Persepolis, you could sort of read mm. different people's experiences during the Iranian Revolution and sort of see how that what's the through line that connects them all because some people will remember it differently as well like you know like I mean it's it's interesting like something I was perceptive of especially later on in the book is when she returns to Iran and she's feeling a lot of guilt about the fact that all these people died while she was just being like a snotty punk in Austria uh, like she carries all this guilt about sort of thinking that she escaped all this all this horror because her parents had the ability to to send her to Vienna where a lot of other people couldn't financially do that and I thought that that really um, you, it was a really interesting uh, situation later where she's talking about having parties and having the guards kick down the door and then take them in and their parents would just come in and pay a fine and get them all out of out of prison. And so they just were like, that's the cost of doing business. Like, we're just going to keep having parties because we know that a party costs you $200. And so our parents can pay that. So we're just going to keep partying and keep costing our parents $200 for every party. And like, and then she sort of in her, the back of her head, she comments like, oh, but not everyone could do that. Like poor people can't have parties because they can't afford the fines, but we could do that because we have the money to, to do that. And it's, 
So she's coming at things from a, a certain point of privilege within the the society she's in, you know. Um, and I think that was kind of an interesting when she sort of acknowledged that she's sort of in a specialized position as well. Mm-hmm. Isn't she? Um, isn't she a princess actually by her lineage? I think that's There's... something in the beginning of the book, as they say that her oh, yeah. grandfather was a prince. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I had completely forgotten that, and I was like, oh, wow, like she mm-hmm. could actually be like Iranian royalty? That's really interesting. Yeah. I think, though, <laughs> if you look at who her parents are, that I don't think that they would want that no. for her. So <laughs> yeah. I, I doubt that that would ever come up, mm-hmm. even given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and it becomes irrelevant over the generations, of course, yeah. like, just because you had a great-grandpa who was mm-hmm. a prince, but just as a like a note of interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Monarchies tend to have lots of kids yeah. because that's how they say in power. <laughs> There's a lot of leftover people <laughs> hanging around, hopefully not causing any trouble. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the art? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very striking. It's got a lot of um, solid blacks, which is very interesting. Like, There's no gray tone. It's like black lines and then black fill. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of patterning, but not even cross hatching really, which is mm-hmm. definitely challenging to execute. And like it's very um I think you know, like deceptively, like you look at it and you're like, Oh, this is fairly simple art, but then making that read really well and um not be confusing is, is quite challenging and I think it's executed really well. Yeah, the mm-hmm. balance between the black and yeah. white is like Spot on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the black, I would agree, is what struck me the most about the art. I felt it lended a certain starkness mm-hmm. that I think supported the work a lot. Because I think with a subject like this, there may be a risk of skewing too far into melodrama just by virtue of the art rendering it really clearly. And I'm thinking of the scene where... Marjani's neighbor's building was blown up and how simply the shapes were depicted, right? And almost nothing was depicted, but it still like was so affecting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think the art in this, this book is really powerful. I think that another thing that really struck me about the art was how because of the black and because of the way that people were depicted, it tend to, create a kind of uniformity in the characters. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the faces weren't distinct. I thought the characters were quite all distinct, but something about it made it rhythmic, like reading mm. about the people and how they all sort of read the same. Like usually if there was someone depicted, they were usually wearing all black, you know? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the, it has the sort of the manga masking effect where like characters are drawn very simply, but unlike a lot of manga the characters are all given the same level of simplicity, so they're all relatable. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah, like I, um, I think the art's great. Um, I wouldn't want. I don't think a story like this would be effective if it was drawn with, say, very realistic art in full color with, uh, like, very detailed digital shading and fully rendered backgrounds. I don't. I think it wouldn't be um, as effective a work. I think that. Um, it's black and white. It's just beautiful as it is. It's like very intense and uh, clear. And it, it is really hard to do um, just black and white as well. Like, I think it's actually 
easier to add color. So I'm impressed with the compositions and mm -hmm. the whole whole work. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really powerful, powerful page. I mean, obviously we can't see it on the podcast, but like pages like this, yeah, have a lot of power to them. Do you want to say what page, page it is and what's uh, on yeah. it? Page uh, 256, uh, where it's um, basically it's an illustration of all the people that were uh, not not on board with uh, the new regime and got executed. So it's just one giant splash page of all these people with blindfolds on and the front row are falling over because they've been shot. Um, yeah. There's some really symbolic imagery as well, like some surreal imagery with the uh, the skulls. There's lots of, at certain, in certain scenes, there's these like sort of like mounds of skulls. Mm, yeah. Do you remember those scenes? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a page here where it's, like uh, it's just like a little silhouette on the horizon, and then like most of the panel is the underground, where it's like full yeah. of skulls and like ruins. Mm -hmm. I loved that page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a there's a good I think there's a good mix of um, uh, what would you call it like realism, like regular family scenes and streets, and then these like surreal inserts sometimes, mm -hmm. um, and they they sort of are seamless. Yeah, one of my I think one of my favorite sequences from early on is like these conversations she has with God as a child, and like yeah. God is depicted as like a physical person in the room and stuff, and I it works very well with you know the rest of the narrative of like dealing with the real life things and then having this relationship with God and what that meant. Um, yeah, so yeah, I don't know. I would echo that. Yeah, uh, I thought it was really interesting how. Marjane could talk about her personal relationship with God, as you mentioned, and how God intersects with Iranian culture, as John was mentioning, and how that relationship was complicated by this re oppressive religious regime, and how Marjane had to navigate her own personal faith and what that meant to her and how that supported her and informed her life while also navigating this very mm -hmm. complex thing where she was being bossed around and told what to do in the name of religion, which didn't support her interpretation of that religion. Mm. Yeah, and there's lots of little bits and pieces in the story that sort of like eat away at the narrative that the regime would like to tell. Like there's the one where she's she gets into art school. Like they're, they're, you have to do a religious interview to get into art school to make sure that you're going to be an upstanding citizen. And so... Uh, she gets past that interview by being really honest about her relationship with religion and the fact that the person interviewing her, she calls a true religious man, uh, whereas like a quote-unquote fake religious man would just want her to repeat what's expected. But no, she's being honest and he can tell she's being honest. And so he said, all right, you can go, you can go to school. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Because you're an honest person. Yeah. 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 Which yeah. All I, these other all these other candidates, they they were lying through their teeth. I know you're being honest, so you're in. Yeah. As a, a counterpoint, <laughs> uh there was the the scene in the hospital where the former window washer had become the head of the <laughs> hospital just uh the way it was described by virtue of growing a beard. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh -huh. Like those little details, they really shine light on a whole complex situation oh yeah i mean just i liked some of the the points where she just sort of shows sort of the ridiculousness of some of what's being asked of them like in art school when they're doing life drawing and they have a woman in a full burqa on the stage and well, she's it's, not like, a, it's not a burqa it's a, or sorry um but a full yeah full covering like uh -huh. head to toe and she's like we drew her from every angle and like 
it just didn't look different no matter what angle you drew it from. You got really good at drapery. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to run out of time soon. Uh, do we want to talk about the movie really quick? Um, I think only I, Jeff watched it. I saw it a long time ago. <laughs> I have zero I haven't recollection I, separate from the book. I watched, I watched the movie last night. So, <laughs> um, Give us a it, short yeah, summary yeah. on how you feel about it. Uh, well, I would say like book. it's it's very much the same story that you read, but uh, it's clearly been streamlined by the author to sort of fit a two-hour runtime. Um, and I think my favorite thing, which you couldn't communicate in a comic form, is the scene where they do the flashback and it's the British telling the new potential leader how he can become a, a king of Iran, how he can set himself up as the Shah. Because it's all in French, uh, the scene where the British person is talking, the voice actor does like the worst French accent. Tu est un bien. Like, it's just like, it's clearly like a French slight against Brit British people trying to speak French. And I just really enjoyed, true. I really enjoyed that. And I just thought uh, for a French cartoon, uh, it was, I appreciated that a lot. And uh, the whole, mo whole uh, movie is black and white, except for uh, her in France is done in color. And then her memories flashing back are in black and white. Hmm. And you see just a little bit more of where she's at in her life sort of in France and that sort of becomes a frame narrative to the rest of it. Um, it was really good. Uh, they adapted her art style into animation really well. Uh, I think a lot of it was cell shaded 3D, uh, but done to look like her art style. So it was like a really, really cool style. I, I highly recommend uh, both. Read okay. this and then watch the movie. In fact, I would say read the comic and then watch the movie. All right. <laughs> um, final thoughts? Uh, I would recommend it to anyone. Yeah, read it. Yeah. It's one of those unusual works that I feel transcends the medium. Mm -hmm. Okay. I know we're not big on establishing canon works at Trade Waiters, <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to do that. But if there were a canon, this would be required reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think this is a great work of art, and... Um, a great memoir just in general, just for anybody who likes memoirs. Um, yeah, I could talk about it for another two hours, honestly, easily, like another whole podcast on it. It's fantastic. Please read it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do we want to do um, shout outs and where to find you? Mm -hmm. um, all right. Uh, I'm Jonathan. Uh, you can find me at phobos-comic.com. Uh, I'm going to shout out Brave by Svetlana Chmakova which I read recently, um, it was really good. It was uh, it's a story set in middle school and has a lot more to say about sort of the, well, I'm not even going to call it quote-unquote bullying because that's not necessarily what's happening, but those sort of like social tensions that happen at that age. I think this book actually has new and interesting things to say, whereas a lot of other books in those settings don't. And it's just really good comics. Um, my name's Jess. And you can find my work at jesspollard.squarespace.com. You can read my new comic on there. I'd like to shout out the comic Dark Angels of Darkness by <laughs> Al Gofa. That's all I want to say about it. <laughs> it's amazing. All right. Uh, so I'm Jeff Ellis. You can find my latest work at eastvancomic.com. Um, and uh, I was just going to shout out uh, one of Marjan's uh, films, 
Uh, so she did an American film called The Voices with Ryan Reynolds and Anna Kendrick. And it's a it's a dark, deep black comedy. Uh, not for everyone. Uh, trigger warning, maybe. Don't, like, just read the synopsis before you watch it. But like, it's the it's a really weird uh, counterpoint to Persepolis. Like, I watched that going, oh, Persepolis, the person who directed Persepolis made this. I'll watch this, and I, you wouldn't know that it was the same person. It's really interesting. Hmm. I'm Kay Ross, and you can find. My work, my currently updating webcomic, Lunar Maladies, at lunarmaladies.com. And I'm going to shout out a webcomic, um, Patrick the Vampire, Patrick spelled with a K, um, no C in there, uh, and by Brie Paulson. It's just really a fun comic. She's been at VanCap for the past couple of years, and I think it's a really interesting take on like the vampire genre. Yeah. Even if you don't like vampires, you should read it, because it's a really compelling story with compelling characters. Uh, I'm Jam. Uh, I don't recommend that you at me. Uh, shout out to ASMR cooking videos, bottomless nice. supply. They're in on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what's our next book going to be? That's going to be Why Art by Eleanor Davis. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at www.tradewaiters.com. Com, is that right? I don't have my paper in front of me. Oh, <laughs> the uh, trade waiters. Trade waiters is, I think it's tradewaiterspodcast.com. I don't know. The I'll waiters. skip that <laughs> part. Uh, you can find us on the internet. We're in lots of places. Google Thank us, you. but make sure you click the right link. <laughs> <laughs>